everyone. Welcome to another edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Getz. With me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Mr. John Boucher. Ooh, Al. That, that meddling Al Getz again. That meddling Al Getz. Yeah, that's a, a line from a new uh, short-form podcast that we'll talk about a little bit later. John, I am on a high because just a few days ago, I saw... For the first time ever in person, a no hitter. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah, I've never never seen a no hitter. It's very exciting. Very very exciting. And I'm you know, so there, for there you. are usually, I think, several a year is probably the most accurate term. It's it's more than a few, but yeah. not by much. So I think that on average there are several a year. But this was already the sixth or seventh. Yeah in this very young MLB season. And not only was it a no-hitter, it was one of my two favorite teams and the team I have been a fan of longer than any other team, and that is the New York Yankees, where Corey Kluber threw a no-hitter. And and in an interesting connection to my other favorite team, the only player for the Rangers to get on base was Charlie Culberson, who played for the Braves for the previous uh, few years. Huh, interesting. I've never seen a no-hitter, maybe someday, fingers crossed. Um, the, I forget what year it was, maybe 88, maybe, maybe I saw Tom Seaver when he was with, uh, Chicago White Sox win his 300th game at Yankee stadium, which was a cool sort of milestone. And I think on that same day, I remember seeing on the, uh, scoreboard, I think it's the same day that Rod Carew got his 3000th hit. If I'm, I was at a game at Yankee stadium when a rod, I forget, I think it was at 499 homers. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, so uh, they had a home game when he was stuck at 499. So every at bat, the whole crowd was just <laughs> waiting for it, waiting for it. We didn't get it that day. But that's not what we're here for, John. <laughs> no. We're here to do a podcast about wrestling. Uh, we've got a lot of things to talk about. I do want to start off by uh, recognizing two wrestlers that passed away uh, recently. The first was Don Kernodal, who is one of four people responsible for the biggest traffic jam in the history of Greensboro, North Carolina. With that Slaughter and Kernodal versus Steamboat and Youngblood match. And then also recently New Jack passed away. uh, I worked with New Jack a few times, and I'm not going to tell you we were tight or anything like that, but we worked together a few times for Wildside and I think one or two other places. I'm fairly sure he put me through a table one time in Wildside. And in all my dealings with New Jack, if you treated him with respect, he returned it. And it, it was that simple. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I have nothing but fond memories of uh, uh, discussing spots with him in the back where, you know, he Aww. just basically says as, as kindly as possible, he's going to, you know, do a number on me and sell, <laughs> damn it. And I said, yes, sir, I will sell. No problem. <laughs> no problem, sir. But we're going to talk about the second quarter of 1977 in the McGurk-Watts territory, which includes the first appearances in the territory of Sylvester Ritter, the future junkyard dog, plus Johnny Boyd comes to the area, but it's not that Johnny Boyd. There's also a title change that probably wasn't a title change, and another title change that would actually set the wheels in motion for a major heel turn at the very, very end of June. I'm talking about Sylvester Ritter. We're going to talk a little bit about a fascinating story in the early life of the Junkyard Dog, as uh, was recently posted to the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. It's a fascinating story involving desegregation, assassination, and expulsion that was one stop in a man's journey to 
transcend race and become a pro wrestling superstar in the Deep South. Um, so, John, I know I sent you a version of the article. I I went through a, a series of rewrites, so I don't know if you had the chance to see the final version that was posted. Um, but we'll definitely uh, discuss it a little more in depth because there's a lot of things that aren't in the article uh, that we can bring up. But it, it's really just a fascinating story that I literally fell into by mistake. We'll also talk about the first quarter of 1964 in the McGurk Territory, where a, a kind of a unofficial Canadian invasion takes place. Plus, we'll talk a little bit about the life and times of Stan Pulaski and also Benny Mata. Uh, and both these guys are, are wrestlers that everybody's heard of, but uh, particularly in the case of Benny, because he was a, never a major star, there's a lot about his life that people might not know. And in many ways, his life is different from most uh, lives of wrestlers that we talked about in that it's relatively boring and mundane and wrestling was just a job he had and he did some other very you know interesting things but nothing no, you know no crazy stories about you know poops in bags flying out of you know hotel windows or you know roofing you know your buddy's drink just a guy that lived a life um and wrestling was just a small part of it uh, from there we're gonna go to mid-atlantic in the second quarter of 1973, the wonderful folks at the Mid-Atlantic Gateway have uh, granted me access to Mark Eastridge's extensive files of house show clippings, and I put together uh, data for the territory using our spot ratings and our feud scores. And we'll talk a little bit about the life and times of two men that were in the territory in 1973, one a rookie just starting out, and the other a grizzled veteran who, long before Michael Jordan and Stone Cold did it, championed the bald-headed look for men. And I personally am glad they did, because I'm carrying that flag in the year 2021. So We're also soon, soon, yeah, very soon. So, uh, you know, wishful thinking. I, in my case, it was it was inevitable, and uh, you know, you never know, John, how you're going to look with a completely shaved head until you actually do it. Um, and it turns out I actually look good. So you're fantastic. You go. Yeah. John, we're uh, going to discuss some audio footage that you sent me from, uh, was it radio or TV? That's radio. A radio segment on Houston wrestling that is part of your vast archival collection. And it's really interesting. It's a, it's a, you know, a, uh, uh, the sports broadcaster doing a segment on, uh, Houston wrestling. Uh, every Friday night with Paul Bosch. And there's really some interesting things in the audio. So we'll talk about that. And at the end of the episode, both John and I will name one new thing we each learned this month. Mm. But we're going to start off with a live unboxing of shit John bought me off of eBay. As we explained last month, I gave John a budget of $50 a month, and he was to use it to order me things off eBay. And John... <laughs> How much did you spend the very first month? I, I went over, Al. Fifty-two fifty. We are already over yeah, budget. Over budget. Over by five percent, oh. John. I, I know. <laughs> Remind me never to hire you to, you know, redo my uh, kitchen. No, you know you don't want that. You don't, you don't but want we're, that. and so he ordered me uh, two items or well two packages from eBay, yeah. and I, I they've been sitting in my apartment for weeks. Uh, waiting for this live unboxing. I have not looked at them. I have not attempted to, you know, shine them with a, a UV light or shake them or drop them or bend them. So I have no idea what's inside. 
we're going to open them now. We're going to do it right now. But I, the first story I want to say, as I prepare the first item, um, I'm not going to say the, the, uh, seller's name full name but his first name is serge and john i have an interesting story about the name serge oh um i don't think it's a huge secret that al gets is a stage name that i used in independent wrestling and i still use it to this day uh, my real name is alan barry last name is b-a-r-r-i-e when my mom was pregnant with me she asked friends and family for suggestions for names and uh an uncle suggested the first name Serge and the middle name Ames, A-M-E-S. So, John, what would that have made my name? Sir James Barry. And and what does that kind of sound like? Sir James Barry, the author of Peter Pan. Uh Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I was going to be Serge Ames (laughs) Barry instead of Sir... (laughs) James Barry. Totally so that gives funny. you a little bit of insight into uh, familial uh, ribs uh, that oh, us, us Jewish good. folk play on one another. But all right, let's see what Surge uh, had for sale that you thought I would get a kick out of. This is the one from Canada, I'm assuming? This is the one from Canada. Okay. okay. So if, if, if we don't like it, we can blame Canada. <laughs> all right, I, I really should have... Uh, looked ahead of time to see how much tape there was and where it was and figured out the best strategic attack for opening this because I'm right now losing to a uh, a thin layer of plastic. Wait, here we go. There's a break. Okay, we're, oh, I think we got it. Okay. Oh, wow. Either I am eating Cheetos or I have opened the package. One or the other. All right, this is... Uh, this is a work in progress. We're going to have to fine tune this and figure out an easier way to open this. This is not going well. I'll, I'll, I'll be sure to leave well packed in my eBay feedback. Oh, no, I'll just bring a knife. I'll, you know, I'll just have a knife handy with me next time. All right, let's see. Does this work? Oh, this is this is going so poorly. This is the problem with live podcasting, ladies and gentlemen. And we're not even really live. I could edit all this out in post-production. But I think I owe it to our listeners to let them see how difficult this is. Because if any of them want to go into podcasting, they should listen to this and realize, okay, I know I can do it better than Al, so. Oh, my God. Ah. I also, you know, because of COVID, I haven't really been, you know, weightlifting as much as I had. So that that is another issue with this. Yeah. Oh goodness. I've, I've, I'm maybe like one fifth of the way. Oh, there we go. Okay, there we. Go. All right, we got it. We got it. And inside the envelope is some uh, something wrapped in styrofoam with. Oh, good, more tape. <laughs> more heavy duty tape. See, the key is to find where it begins. Uh, uh, ah. Oh, man. If, if they ever send me something with bubble wrap, uh, I will be spending much of our podcast time uh, popping the oh, bubble wrap. Uh, he, he wrapped it. Oh, my God. He wrapped it like four times around. And now I have it stuck to my, now I have the tape stuck to my hands. Okay, I got that off. Okay. Go up, Surge. All right, Surge. 
you are a very good packer. Uh, no doubt in my mind that this item is in very good condition, given how well he packaged it. <laughs> and I think we've got it open. This is, oh, whoa, the, the Montreal Star Weekend magazine. So Montreal Star, I assume, is a legitimate newspaper in uh canada and this would this so this is like their weekend magazine that has like you know the movie listings and what's interesting to do in town yeah hot stuff downtown you know. all right and and who's on the cover uh but uh everybody's favorite sudanese madman abdullah the butcher so this yeah. is an article from the montreal star weekend uh and it's got a quote abdullah the butcher i like Blood. So there's a comma after every word. So it's I, comma, like, comma, blood, period. I, comma, go, go, go. I, like, butcher many people. Uh, yeah. oh, but, uh, but that's not all. Now there's a little treat. There's, there's a, a little, little treat. treat. Okay, so you knew about this because this looks like oh, yeah. something that, that he might have just thrown in for the So, But anyway, so I, there's a story. Uh, the Four Mondays of Abdullah. Uh, so there's a nice little article about Abdullah the Butcher um, in this Montreal Silver Weekend. But there's also a portrait. There's more. Well, uh, I, I, and I say portrait. It's I, I don't know if it's crayon or paint or whatever, but, <laughs> is it, or, but it's Ivan Koloff. Yes, it is. Signed yes. by Pierre. Si si who's, who's Pierre? I don't know. Oh, well, that's even better. <laughs> and Ivan Koloff is spelled Ivan. It's spelled Y-V-A-N. Well, now I will I will put pictures of these on our blog uh, every month after the podcast comes out. We have what we call a podcast companion piece that has links to a lot of the things we talked about, uh, embedded video of some of the YouTube clips we talk about, and I will post pictures of what John spent my money on because we've got a uh, magazine article about Abdullah Butcher and a portrait. Uh, and there, he's, uh, he did a really good job drawing the chest hairs in of Ivan Koloff, signed by somebody named Pierre. I have a feeling the second package is going to be easier to open. Note, I did not say easy, but easier. And this came, this came from Maryland. Oh, okay. I think you had said it, you were you thought it was coming from Pennsylvania, so it's possible um, uh. they're right on the border there, uh, and. Uh, it is clearly marked photographs do not bend and my mail like carrier, that. as well as all previous uh, handlers of this package, did not bend it at all. So they heeded the instructions. And oh, yeah, that see, now I've got the experience of the, opening that first one under my belt. This one is a whole lot easier. I say that, but I hit a second. There we go. OK, we got it. We got it. Open. OK, and this one, it's not styrofoam, but there is cardboard packaging inside. Uh, mm -hmm. And and there's even a little uh, a little cutout from the order. So without even opening it up, I can see what it is. It is a lot ah. of two vintage 1947 through 1950 era wrestling letters, uh, uh, apparently related to the Gene Stanley Fan Club. Yeah. Now, if you had gotten me something from the Paul Stanley Fan Club, John, <laughs> I would have been just as excited as I would. But but. But right. here we go. So this is a official letterhead from the Gene Stanley Fan Club. 
Yeah. The president was Barbara Karasik from Asbury Park, New Jersey. And the secretary was Mickey Jarko from Wickapeco Drive in Wanamasa, New Jersey. Mm. Wickapeco Drive in <laughs> Wanamasa, New Jersey. And uh, this is a letter. Um, uh, they're, they're wanting a, a picture of George Becker. Okay. And now we've I got... Love Go ahead. These old, uh, these old, any, any old letterhead or stationery. I'm super into that stuff. I love that stuff. I don't know why it's such a weird. So there, uh, yeah, there's a picture of Gene Stanley and I guess his nickname, his moniker was the golden Apollo. Oh, wow. And now, uh, we also have, uh, from letterhead from the, the Paul Bowser enterprises, yes. world's okay. most foremost, world's foremost wrestling organization. Uh, per, the, the president was Paul Bowser. The publicity director was High Golden. John, I have an uncle, High, and it's spelled huh. the same way, H-Y. It is short for Henry, uh, but uh, I guess they shorten it to High. Um, huh. He was married to my Aunt Taffy. So I had Aunt Taffy and Uncle High. Um, huh. All right, so this is a letter, uh, it's a, and it's a letter to the same person. Uh, as the Gene Stanley letter was addressed to. Uh, Dear sir, you have been recommended to me by Bob Bibber McCoy. I am having a lot of 8x10 professional pictures printed of all the wrestlers. Um, Can you give me a good price on orders? Okay, so he's uh, sending it to a photographer. And and that's on the other side where they were asking for photographs of George Becker. This now makes sense. Uh, The person Ah. these letters were written to is a photographer. And Paul Bowser was looking for quotes to have pictures printed of the wrestlers under his employ. Oh. Fascinating wrestling correspondence. Yeah. And that, so that's, I mean, so those are from uh, the late forties or 1950. Those have survived 70 years. Which is really amazing when you think about it that these that these things have lasted that long. So great pieces of wrestling history added to my collection, thanks to John Boucher and his going over budget by only five percent. <laughs> All right, that, 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 I promise our listeners next month I will be I will have a knife with me or scissors. <laughs> Um, so hopefully that will go quicker, but we are going to start with the meat of our podcast, John, as we go to the second quarter of 1977 in the McGurk Watts territory, looking at the top of the cards, uh, as measured by our exclusive spot ratings. And you can find more on these ratings on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. The main eventers, um, on the babyface side, we have Dick Murdoch, Bill Watts, Bruiser Bob Sweetan, Grizzly Smith, Vic Rossitani, and Jerry Oates. We also, towards the end of the quarter, uh, we have a turn as Killer Carl Cox turns babyface. And this was an angle Cox had been teaming with uh, Choi Sun, uh, and they ended up having some matches against Skandor Akbar's team of the medics, who were uh, Jim Starr and Tom Andrews. And uh, I believe... Choi Sun legitimately was injured, uh, but they ran a, an angle where Akbar, I think, injured him. Um, and then a couple weeks later, the medics are attacking Jerry Oates. Killer Carl Cox comes out to make the save. And the two former rivals, because Cox and Oates had actually been feuding, 
are now reluctant tag team partners. And John, one of the things they did back in these days that you don't see a lot now is when something like this happens, when a heel purports to turn babyface and the babyface is perhaps reluctant to team up with him. They yeah. do um, a story at the house shows where the heel posts a bond. Um, so huh. in the storyline, he posts a $500, $1,000 cash bond to promise that he will not turn on Jerry Oates, uh-huh. which just adds a level of realism to it. Because if, if guys have been feuding for months, um, you know, you should not trust a man who now yes. says he wants to be your friend. So yes. if he's willing to put his money where his fist is or his mouth, <laughs> I guess, you know, that that helps lend credence. But also on the heel side, Stan Hansen, Pat Barrett, John Tolis, and as I previously mentioned, the medics. So looking at our spot ratings, the top uh, wrestlers by spot rating were Murdoch, Watts, Cox, and Hansen. And all four of them stay uh, are there throughout the whole quarter. Uh, Bob Sweetan leaves. Grizzly Smith leaves. And I think this was the first time in a while that he left the territory. I believe he goes to Florida. And later in the year, he ends up in Mississippi for the Culkins. But that's another story for another time. John Tolis leaves. And then uh, Vic Rossitani, who had been here previously as Vic Mueller, returns to the territory. But this time he's billed as Vic Rossitani. But one of the interesting things we talked about, Killer Carl Cox turning babyface. And this now completes a cycle that was two years, almost two years in the making, because Killer Carl Cox and Dick Murdoch came to this territory together in, I believe, the summer of 1975. And they were a team, but John, that didn't last long. Because who turned babyface? Murdoch turned babyface. Yeah, Murdoch turned babyface, and they actually feuded uh, from late 75 all the way through the summer of 76, because at the very first event at the Superdome, they were second from the top in the Jim Bowie death match, yeah. which we talked about. We talked, we actually dug into the history of Jim Bowie uh, on one of our very early episodes of this podcast. Um, and so then for a while they were kept apart, but now it seems that both wrestlers are once again back on the same side, this time as baby faces. Hmm. But not so fast, as we'll find out when we cover the third quarter of 1977. Uh, It does not last that they're both on the same side. But talking about Dick Murdoch feuding with Killer Carl Cox reminded me of a book that just came out last week, John. It's called Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Wrestling History by Phil Schneider and Chris Bryant. I haven't received it yet, but I have ordered it. Uh, But I believe one of the matches that made this list of 100 of the greatest bloody matches in wrestling history was a December 1976 bout from Japan between Murdoch and Cox. Huh. Have you heard of this match? Have you seen it? You'd you'd know it if you've seen it. Uh, No, I don't think I have. Murdoch Murdoch hits a a great uh, color job. Uh, and then not long afterwards, Cox does as well. It's, uh, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of blood in my day, but watching this match, I can easily see why it made the top 100 list. So we'll post a link to that book, which is available yeah. on Amazon.com and also to the video of Murdoch and Cox. Yeah, I can't believe I haven't seen that. It sounds fantastic. And Murdoch is a part of a, uh, an ancillary part of a big title change during the quarter. Uh, Stan Hansen 
beat Murdoch to win the North American title in June, and they have a rematch on June 20th. However, Murdoch, and I'm using air quotes here, no shows that, and they said he, quote, missed his flight out of New Orleans. Um, based on my research, it seems this was all an angle and this was the plan all along. I, you know, maybe it wasn't, but it sure reads like one of these Bill Watts specials. Um, so then they further say that since Bill Watts just happened to be at the show, he's not booked for another match, but they say because he wanted to challenge the winner, it's decided that Hansen will face Watts instead. And Watts defeats Stan Hansen to win the North American title. So I, I think we've sort of set the table and told our listeners what's going to happen without actually saying it, but Murdoch's reaction to how this all went down is going to play a big part of the third quarter of 1977. Another title change that I don't think actually happened, but is reported as happening in most of the title history sites and sources was uh, the aforementioned Cox teaming with Jerry Oates to feud with the medics. Uh, there are records that indicate that Oates and Cox won the titles, but I actually did a post on my blog where I looked at all the house show clippings I have for this territory, and I don't believe this title change actually happened. Hmm. Um, it's just one of those things where there's just a lot of incorrect information that gets passed on and passed down and without someone actively looking in detail into you know the, the territory as a whole just like we said a few months ago with the lorenzo parente danny hodge title change where it was not a title change or even if it was it was only in little rock based on what i've seen with the description of the matches with cox and oats against the medics there was not an actual title change uh but there might have been a scenario where the baby faces won but they do the dusty finish and hmm. uh, on tv the following week they claim nope not so much so this is just part of the misinformation that is often out there and that brings us to johnny boyd Ah, yeah. Because further down the roster in the second quarter of 1977, we find in the uh, prelims, we find Johnny Boyd and Wrestling Data, WrestlingData.com credits these matches to Lord Jonathan Boyd. And, and when I first saw his name, I, I did the same thing because it, it seemed reasonable to me that uh, Boyd, who had worked here before, he was actually here uh, in 70 or 71 as a babyface named Johnny Boyle. With a small push. But as I thought more about it, the Johnny Boyd here is used solely in prelims. And by this point in time, John, you know, the the Royal Kangaroos were already a a pretty well-known team. They had a big run in Mid-Atlantic in 73. They had been in Stampede for, you know, years. So it just didn't make sense to me that Lord Jonathan Boyd would come back here and work uh, six weeks as a prelim babyface. So the um, that's the subject of the first episode of Wrestling History Mysteries, which is a new, I call it a short form podcast. The other term is micro podcast. This first episode is about 10 minutes long. So it's a very quick listen. It's part of the Charting the Territories feed. So if you subscribe to us, you should have received uh, or seen this podcast in your feed a couple of weeks ago. If not, you can always go to Charting the Podcast. Dot com, And this is something I'm going to do, John, most months, where I use research, logic, 
and common sense to solve some of these minor inaccuracies that have uh, proliferated uh, wrestling history and wrestling sites. Um, in addition to that, I'm also going to create a second micro podcast called Stats 101. Um, I developed the blog based on numbers and data. As you and I have uh, worked on this podcast for a year now, I think uh, the majority of our listeners are far more interested in the stories we tell about the wrestlers, particularly their lives outside of wrestling. We're almost in some ways the opposite of dark side of the ring because we try <laughs> and find uh, the good in wrestlers, which isn't always there and isn't always uh, easy to find, but we, we really dig really deep. Well, you know, I, I think about Don Diamond, where initially the thing we found about Don Diamond out of the ring seemed to indicate uh, his life was heading south. And it turns out it didn't, that it was just a wake-up call for him. So I really like that we do that, do that on this podcast. But I think there are some listeners that want to hear more not only about the numbers that I create um, for our spot ratings and feud scores, but how I come up with the numbers and how I get the data to come up with those numbers. So we're going to talk about these stats, but also we're going to talk about my journeys and my travels as I acquire this data. I was recently in Dothan, Alabama. So next month on the first episode of Stats 101, I'll talk a little bit about what I was doing there, what I was looking for, and where I found it. So some months there will be a Wrestling History Mystery podcast, some months there will be a Stats 101 podcast, and some months there'll be one of each. But every month there's going to be Charting the Territories podcast. And talking about stories and information we found, uh, John, we were going to discuss Sylvester Ritter, because as we mentioned previously, he uh, had his first ever appearances in the McGurk Territory in the spring of 1977. So I was doing a search on newspapers.com. I was actually looking for some information about his high school athletics career. Uh, it's been said he played football and wrestled while in high school. So I was looking for the years when I believed he was in high school based on what I know of him and his age. And I stumbled on something that surprised me. I found a story from the uh, Charlotte newspaper uh, that mentioned Ritter uh, Sylvester Ritter and three other students had been expelled from area high schools in Anson County, North Carolina, um, as part of protests in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, and that the NWACP had actually stepped in on behalf of the expelled students to try and get them uh, readmitted to school. And John, the more I looked into the story, I actually couldn't find much more in the way of details in the Charlotte newspaper or in any of the other newspapers on newspapers.com. But thankfully, I decided to check Google.com's newspaper archive, which was something they were doing several years ago. They were actively trying to scan all newspapers that they could. They abandoned the project a few years ago, but they haven't taken it down. So everything oh they, had, they had scanned is still up. And still the there. Anson Record, which was the uh, twice-a-week newspaper in Anson County, North Carolina, which is where Sylvester Ritter was born and grew up in Wadesboro, had a number of articles about this story. And the more I read about it, the more fascinating it got. Short version... In the wake of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination in April 1968, uh, several students at Anson High School, where Sylvester Ritter was a student, um, 
actually walked out uh, as part of a disagreement with the school over whether the flag uh, was going to be flown at half-mast or not. They actually walked out of the school uh, and went to a local, I believe it was a Presbyterian church. Yes, to Lowry Memorial Presbyterian Church. 34 students were suspended, and it was reported that one student who cursed the school principal was expelled for the remainder of the school term. After reading numerous articles in various sources and piecing everything together, that student was Sylvester Ritter. And he was one of a few students that were expelled. The other three were expelled from a different high school in the same county. Um, after uh, they staged a sit-in outside the principal's office uh, after lunch. Um, after a threat of suspension, some students returned to class while 85 others were escorted by police outside the school to board buses that would take them home. And these students were suspended for three days. Three of the students after that suspension refused to return to class and they were expelled. So... When you consider the life of Sylvester Ritter and his uh, evolution into the junkyard dog, perhaps, you know, arguably the first undisputable top babyface of a pro wrestling territory uh, in the South for, you know, for a major territory and looking at the events that sort of shaped his youth. I I think we know a lot of people know that he graduated from college with a degree in political science. But now, with this incident in mind, you, you sort of wonder, was his interest in that field born out of his experiences in school yeah. or not? Because the other thing, John, this school had been newly desegregated. That was the first year that the school system in the county was fully desegregated. I implore everyone to go to chartingtheterritories.com and read the article because yeah. there are some shocking um, details of how a lot of the town responded to uh, Mm -hmm. the inevitable desegregation of the schools. What's not in the article uh, was the Anson record also had some editorials about the suspensions and the walkouts and reading it today. It, it sure reads like they are saying these black students should have done what they were told and none of this would have happened. Mm. And it's hard to take. It's also the, um, Editorials point out that all four of these suspended students had had, quote unquote, disciplinary issues before. Again, framing it as, you know, these are bad seeds and and this isn't political. This is just, you know, bad kids being bad kids. But John, one of these disciplinary acts, one, a female that was expelled from Bowman High School was expelled. uh, No, I'm sorry, was disciplined for. And I hope you have your pearls ready, John. She wore a shirt that said NAACP Youth Leader. Wow. And she was disciplined for that. So they're trying to frame these students as troublemakers because they wore a T-shirt that said NAACP Youth Leader. So, you know, there's just a lot of reading this. And again, this was uh, 50 years ago, uh, 53 years ago. It's really hard to gauge intent by reading these newspaper articles and editorials all these years later, but it's just, uh, it's just such a sad state. I know uh, in the wake of Dr. King's assassination, there were riots in many, many cities, but I wonder, uh, given that four students were expelled from one school district in North Carolina, I wonder how many other students yeah. 
were uh, expelled or disciplined for, you know, uh, for their political views, you know, or for taking a stand for what they believed in. Yeah, I had never um, heard the yeah. story before. Um, to the best of my knowledge, no one has. I was actually talking with my friend Chris Zellner the other day, and he said he, ne you know, he's never searched for wrestlers before they were wrestling. So, uh, you know, I I asked a lot of people because I wanted to make sure that no one had ever heard this before. But at the same time, I did, I wanted to like keep this story close to the vest because if yeah. it was, you know, the first time anyone's heard of it, I didn't want word getting out ahead of time. So, but yeah, as best I can tell, this has never been told since it first happened in April night in April of 1968. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a fascinating story about uh, you know in the life of a man who went on to transcend race and become a hero to yeah. all wrestling fans in 1982 when the new orleans uh, times picayune uh had a poll of its readers to ask who the uh their favorite athlete was the winner was the junkyard dog mm -hmm. not just favorite wrestler not just most popular wrestler most popular athlete yeah <laughs> and it was the junkyard dog um, so John, one of the things that interested me, we're recording this Sunday evening and I posted this article earlier today, um, and it got a lot of, uh, feedback and responses. And, and, and so I'm, I'm thankful to everyone that read it and I'm thankful to everyone that retweeted or commented on the story. But one of the things that was interesting was in looking at the retweets, um, you know, when I retweet something, I always try and include a, a sentence of why I think my followers should look at this. And what was interesting to me was that of the people that retweeted this, uh, my tweet about the article, they all had slightly different takeaways in their, you know, what they thought was important to tell their followers interesting. about. Interesting. So it was just really interesting to see that different people focused on different things. For example, there was one person that retweeted uh, and he had said, you know, Sylvester Ritter helped desegregate the school system in North Carolina. And when I first read it, I'm like, wait, 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 that's not true. But actually, if you go back and read the story, the um, before the school system was fully desegregated, a handful of black students um, actually crossed over to the white school. They were recruited by the uh, football coach uh, of the junior high school. And I am almost certain that Ritter was one of them. So in a sense, he was, you know, one of the very first students and oh, that wow. probably did paved the path towards the uh, the full desegregation of the school system. Uh, so it's just really interesting to see how different people take away different things. And and I'm I'm yeah. saying this because, John, I want to know what is your, you know, short version? Uh, you know, if you wanted to tell people why they should read this article in, what is it, 180 characters or less, what would you say? Yeah. It, oh, man, it's, for me, it's, 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 it's the, the issue of race. And I, growing up a, a, a white guy from Connecticut, it's difficult for me to talk about and, and, and expect for people to uh, listen to me. And, and, and it didn't take me seriously. Um, what really hit me with this was thinking about, you know, you said it was like 50, 53 years ago. And it really hit me. You know, I was, I was born you know, five years after this. And it, it was amazing how... Like it is 53 years ago, but it's not that long ago, yeah. In the scope of actual history, and the same stuff is still the different, you know, is still happening in a lot of places. And it's just, it's, 
it was really hit me just like how like racism still exists it's the way it manifests itself the way it manifests itself rather has changed but just that it it, it would be just so 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 awful and and blatant yep. <laughs> this you know not not that long ago it's 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 infuriating sad and and maddening to yeah when when the school board first decided to fully integrate the schools uh their houses were bombed for their you know four members of the uh board and i think uh the president uh all had their homes or businesses firebombed yeah is it one of the football coaches, like also the Grand Dragon of the local KKK? No, the, the football the football coach that recruited Ritter as well as the other students was confronted by the um, the local Grand Dragon of oh, the okay. KKK, right. uh, whose two sons went to the school, um, and the gotcha. coach actually um, felt uh, threatened enough that he left and took a job at Wake Forest not yes, long okay. thereafter. So I mean, there's. There's all sorts of moving parts, and it, it's really not just a story about Sylvester Ritter. It's it's a story about America, and it's, as you said, it's not that long ago. I, I was born no. a few years afterward, but, you know, my mom was an adult uh, when yeah. this happened. You, you know, Everyone who listens, if you weren't alive, you have people very close to you that, that were alive during this. And as you said— it has adapted and manifested itself in different forms, but racism still exists today. Uh, one of the things I was thinking about, this is our 12th monthly episode, which means next month is our one-year anniversary. We recorded the first episode when we recorded it. It was during the height of the uh, protests after George Floyd's death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here we are 50-plus years later, and as much progress as America has made, has it really? Yeah, it, it, it kind of makes you want to move to Canada, doesn't it, John? <laughs> no, no, yes. Uh, that was my clever segue. Uh, because believe me, I could talk about Sylvester Ritter and the Junkyard Dog and this article and racism for a long time, but I want to touch on the other time periods we have hit about on the blog this month. So in the first quarter of 1964, there was a, a Canadian invasion of sorts. So that's my segue of <laughs> wanting to move to Canada. But looking at the roster for McGurk, um, we have Stan Pulaski, who was born in Newfoundland. Terry Garvin was born in Montreal. Cherry Kozak was originally from British Columbia. Tony Manos was born in Greece, but emigrated to Toronto in 1951. Pat Patterson was born in Montreal. A wrestler named Chin Lee is believed to have been born in Quebec. And Pierre Deglaine, who I think most wrestling fans know better as Donald Lorty, um, but here he was using the name Pierre Deglaine, he was born in Montreal. But one of the wrestlers who left, who was not Canadian, is Cowboy Bill Watts. Oh, yeah. But as we talked about last month, Watts had left uh, Vancouver on very short notice and came back to work for McGurk and ended up working with Wild Red Berry on a couple of shows uh, for McGurk over the holidays. And as Watts tells the story, Berry thought very highly of him and re recommended him to Vince Sr. And so when Watts leaves here in February of 1964, he is heading up north. Uh, he goes to the WWF. Yeah, because they, they, they took that name in 63, right? Yep. 
So yeah, so he goes to the WWF and he's a babyface for a full year before turning heel on Bruno Sammartino in February 1965. John, have you seen any of the matches uh, involving Bill and Bruno? I've never seen any of their uh, matches. I don't, I hate to, I, I, I never like to say never as far as uh, footage existing. Uh, but no, I've seen there is footage, however, of Watts uh, as a heel on WWF TV. I think there's full episodes from this time that are out there. I think Roy Lusher has them uploaded to his YouTube channel. And there's an episode from right in the middle of the Bruno feud, I think May of 65, and Watts is on there. And he's just a monster, just, you know, I think he wrestles like uh, underneath a guy like Thomas Marin or somebody and just destroys the guy. He's just huge, the big, big, solid dude. And I've, yeah, I've never seen footage of their matches. This is just the stills uh, from the magazine. But there, I don't know, there's so many, the Bruno Watts thing, there's so many, you know, fortuitous, almost serendipitous events that occur like you're mentioning the wild red berry uh, in, in his career that, that, that make this feud and their, their friendship, their relationship. So, so interesting, you know? Yeah. And, and while I think his going there when he did was because of red berry, I'm pretty sure it would have happened anyway, yeah. and, and probably not too much later than it did. So yeah, you know, sometimes timing is everything and being in the right place at the right time, but sometimes things are inevitable. And I think Watts, um, you know, trying to find a place, as as we mentioned, he was, had been in and out from McGurk and wrestled in a few other places. He got a push in East Texas. He was wrestling in Vancouver. He hadn't yet found his happy place and, and looking at him, his size in 1964 and 1965, uh, the Northeast was absolutely his happy place. Uh, Looking at all the other territories, it was tailor made for him. So he was going to end up there anyway. And it's interesting too, the, the, you know, the, uh, the red berry thing is, and you have the whole, that whole house of cards scenario with Buddy Rogers trying to come back in, uh, you know, it's like, it's, you know, that who knows how that pans out, that might have panned out totally differently. Um, it's very, very, very interesting. And they end up doing, I think, I think a total of, of, of four matches at the garden, which is very rare, Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for Bruno's opponent at that time. And I think, uh, you know, and, and this kind of like the turn, uh, with Watts turning on Bruno was was uh, unique for the time because up, up until that point, Bruno's title defenses have just been, you know, the WWWF formula, just cycling through the heel of the month, you know, Killer Kowalski, Gorilla Monsoon, Dr. Jerry Graham, Fred Blassie. Um, but this was like, you know, a turn, an actual, you know, something with some actual emotion and feeling behind it. And I think their second match, I think they broke, you know, the existing attendance record. Um, they end up doing like a Texas death match that ends up, uh, with the athletic commission coming in and calling it up, so they get to do a fourth one after the blow-off match, which is uh, really interesting. It's like, I don't know if they had any type of, you know, relationship or friendship over the years, but they had such like a tremendous amount of respect for each other, it seemed like, like years later uh, during like the Georgia Wall and, and Gunkel, I think, brought in Bruno for like a, a tag match. Well, with she Ernie was Ladd. going to. Yeah, and, you know, and then, and, you know, and then Bruno, you know, you know, uh, you know, called Watts and, you know, had a little, little talk with him, you know, and yeah, everybody assured each other. So it's like, this is like, you know, eight years after they've been in the ring together, they still had that, that respect, you know, and these two guys seem like very different people in their, in their personal lives, especially as, as younger, younger men. 
Uh, but just like I said, a huge amount of mutual respect. Am I correct that Bruno didn't actually make that booking? I don't know. I don't know. I've never seen a result for that. I've just seen the, yeah, the ad. I, I think I think he uh, changed his mind as they got closer uh, to the match. I don't think it was the plan. I don't think it was a planned swerve. Um, but I think uh, Bruno changed his mind, or you know, was uh, coaxed into changing his mind. But I'm not positive. So if any of our listeners um, know know anything more about that, let us know. We're uh, one of the things about this podcast uh, is I'm I'm always admit when I get something wrong. Uh, and it happens occasionally. I, I'm, I, there's no shame in admitting that. There's nothing wrong nope. with uh, admitting you got a minor factoid in the grand scheme of wrestling history wrong. It, it's going to happen, and it's not a big deal. And, and I like finding out that I'm wrong, because by by figuring out where I went wrong and, and how I got to that incorrect conclusion, it helps hone my methodology and hopefully will make me more accurate going forward. Want to talk about Stan Pulaski? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a couple of articles on the always great Slam Wrestling website. Of course, a, a nice article written when he passed. Um, he lived to 79. But there's also an article uh, a few years before that that is titled Eric Pomeroy, Still a Happy Russian and More. <laughs> Um, and uh, this was uh, written by Greg Oliver. Uh, Greg does great work, as does all of Slam Wrestling. Um, and, you know, there's some interesting things about Eric Pomeroy, also known as Stan Pulaski, also known as Stan Vashan, also known as a couple of other names, John. So um, what did you uh, in- enjoy about this article? It's 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 it's, it's interesting. Um, he, I mean, the guy works everywhere. Uh Worked at Stan Pulaski, I think Portland, California, Central States, Japan. And I was, I was, I, I, I was so confused. I remember, I think when he when he passed a few years back, I, I, I'd get confused. I'd see clippings and results for him as Pulaski, and then the next week in the same territory, I'd see him billed as the Mad Russian, uh, and then the next week, Stan Pulaski again. I'm like, what? Do they have him under a mask? Did they have him unmasked? Was he pulling double duty? Uh, or did he just start out on spot shows under one name and change his name on TV or what was going on? But apparently, and it's cleared up in this article, um, <laughs> Stan Pulaski, the mad Russian, and the happy Russian were all under the same sort of gimmick umbrella. Like if he was a heel, he'd be Stan Pulaski, the mad Russian. If he was a babyface, he'd be Stan Pulaski, the happy Russian. So once I read that, things became much more more clear for me. Like with the Mad Russian, I was thinking some sort of like Pampiro Furpo meets the Rasputin type gimmick, and with the Happy Russian, I was thinking of like the Mighty Igor or early Ivan Putsky, like wheeling a toy train to the ring or whatever. But no, um, I think it was while he was the Mad Russian in in out west California where he met Butcher Butcher Paul Vashon, and I think Vashon was heading back to Georgia then, uh, and then he had talked to the Booker in Georgia. Uh, Leo Garibaldi at the time, probably. And he had mentioned to Paul in the past, like, oh, if you have a tag team partner, that could open up some some more booking opportunities for you. Um, and, you know, Mad Dog was unable to commit to that full time in Georgia. He was, he was figured into the AWA title picture at that time. You know, so Paul calls Mad Dog, says, uh, hey, Mad Dog. And he pitches the idea of another brother. Uh, and Mad Dog gives it his blessing. And they are off to, to, to the races feuding with the Torres brothers there. You know, and occasionally Mad Dog uh, would would come down and they'd do like a big six-man tag thing. And, you know, he talked about how 
one of the more interesting aspects of of Stan's career here, and this is just so unique to this era of territorial wrestling, is how, depending on where in the country he was, um, he was either you know a family member of the Vashans or or a a fellow across the ring, like in Georgia and Florida, he was Stan Vashan teaming with Paul uh, or Mad Dog. Uh, then in like the Midwest in the AWA, he'd be Stan Pulaski feuding with the Vashan brothers. So it's 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 super interesting to me. Yeah, and I and I, at times in the AWA, he was Stan Pulaski teaming with them. Yes. Yes, so yes, yeah, yes, this sure. is. A, I wonder if he had, you know, if he like needed a, a scorecard. He had a little notebook. When I'm <laughs> when I'm Stan Vashon, I'm a heel. Unless I'm in Nebraska between '64 and whatever. Um, and then if I'm east of the Mississippi, I'm you know Aww. Stan Vashon. Uh, I don't know, but you you also found a fascinating article from uh, the West Side High School newspaper. <laughs> which I believe is named the Lance. Uh, and this is an article on Stan Pulaski, now known as the Happy Russian. Uh, this is the high school newspaper uh, for a high school in in Omaha, I believe. Yeah, yeah. where well, what's great about this is uh, it's uh, it talks about Stan, but then the second half of the article goes into great detail on on what's what's in a wrestling ring. How to build a wrestling ring is basically the second part of the article. The ring in which the <laughs> battles are held is a big square piece of canvas, or so that's all it seems to be to the fan who watches the show at home and gets a top view. But when you get a chance to sit right on the floor, you are able to look underneath the ring and see what the mat really consists of. And the author, who is whose name is Steve Skygo, S-C-I-G-O, who I'm assuming would be a student at the school at the time, um, I guess was afforded a look at what actually exists underneath the ring. Ah. Now, I, of course, in my days as uh, in the indies, uh, I, I know exactly what's in a ring. And uh, believe me, it is not it's not a mattress in, in springs. Uh, believe me, <laughs> there is uh, not a whole lot of cushioning going on in there. But yeah, we'll um, we'll post a link to this article as well as the uh, articles from Slam Wrestling on the blog. And I'm also going to post uh, an amazing picture uh, from an article um, in the July 1973 issue of The Ring, um, there is this picture of him holding a baby. And Sam Pulaski is this big, giant, <laughs> mad Russian kind of guy. And he's holding this baby in such a way that I'm not quite sure how many babies he had held up until that point yeah, in time. Um, but uh, and apparently, according to the article, uh, this is this baby is the baby of his Omaha fan club president. Yes. yes. And Pulaski yes. said, I was scared of breaking him. The baby, that is. <laughs> he looks he looks he looks it. Yeah, he, he looks uh, genuinely like he has never held a baby before in his life. So we will post that picture from uh, the July 1973 issue of The Ring. Uh, one of the many great wrestling magazines in the 70s that often had very sensationalistic uh, stories. And we'll we'll get to one of those later. Um, oh, but also one, yeah. one more, one more, one more Pulaski thing. I just I, and I can I mean, you can you can confirm this for me. I think it's here uh, for McGurk in this run here in 64 that Pulaski meets Carol Krauser, who also works as Carol Kalmakoff. Yes. Uh, and Carol's. Former partner Ivan had gone to work for like the zoo in Detroit or something. 
So we needed a new tag partner. So when they leave the territory, they start teaming up and Pulaski build with him as either Stan or Igor Kalmakov. Um, they only last a few months. I think Carol died of a heart attack in September 64. But Stan continued to use that name through the end of the year. Uh, I think also in Calgary uh, after that afterward. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, 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 that that was a, another gimmick of his life I left out there. And a fun yeah. Kalmakov fact, Nikita Malkovich, who we talked about a couple months ago, also worked as Nikita Kalmakov for a brief time. But we're also going to post a link to a YouTube video of Eric Pomeroy um, from uh, Buffalo in the 1960s against Woody Strode. And, you know, given that we were talking earlier about Sylvester Ritter and and, and his sort of breaking through some barriers uh, in wrestling, Woody Strode uh, has an interesting story. He, I believe he was one of the first black players in the National Football League. Hmm. Uh, and he also might have been one of the very few former NFL players to ever get nominated for a Golden Globe Award. Yeah. Uh, and what movie was he nominated for, John? That's Spartacus, right? Spartacus? Yes. Yeah, that oh, that fight scene in Spartacus is fantastic. Uh, it's it's really really great. Um, he and it's funny the commentator during the match says that Woody Strode had been in like uh, like six films, uh, but actually he had at the up to that point he'd been well over like close to like two dozen movies. The guy ended up with like something like almost sixty seventy acting credits over the course of his career, which lasted pretty much. Until until his death, I think his last movie was was The Quick and the Dead with uh, Sharon Stone, the Western with Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, Russell Crowe. Um, and it's funny the uh, during the match, uh, you know, he, he he's doing these uh, these knee lifts, and the the commentator's like, "There's the same knee lift he used against Kirk Douglas and Spartacus." <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's a brilliant idea. If you if you yeah. have that big spot in a movie, I would do that all the time. Yeah. Benny Mata is a name that came up in my research. And what's so interesting and so fascinating to me about him is the relatively normal life he led. Um, he joined the U.S. Merchant Marines at the age of 16, later transferred to the Marine Corps. After being honorably discharged, he began his wrestling career. Uh, he was married at the age of 23 to a woman he had first met in middle school. So this is probably his first love, they got married, you know, presumably when he returned from, you know, service for the Marines. And they stayed married for 59 years until Benny passed away in 2011. Uh, and aside from his wrestling career, which saw him mostly wrestling in East Texas, where he was known for his mule kick, he became involved in two family businesses uh, in the San Antonio area, which was Mata's Auto Supply and Mata's Hill Country Playground which in later years was the site of at least three wrestling shows. So he never truly wow. left wrestling. Yeah. Uh, even after he retired, he still used his venue to host wrestling shows. So Benny Mata, you dug up something interesting. He has a small role in one of the bigger babyface turns in wrestling history. So tell us about that, John. Yes. Well, I found this info on the World Class History page, WC www.memories.blogspot.com run by a guy named John I'm going to mispronounce this John Denene perhaps John Denene no. that sounds John made Denene. up no. um, John it's like a maybe it's Dan, maybe it's Danene <laughs> Dan, Danene that's probably more correct I fletched it there uh, it, it hasn't been updated in a few years but there's a lot of great information on it uh, much like the Mid-Atlantic Gateway site there's a lot of recollections 
from people who were out the house, at the house shows who were watching the weekly television back then. Um, a lot of this information is stuff that would be otherwise be lost to time. <laughs> uh, a case in point, there's a, there's a Von Erich uh, FAQ page on this blog. And one of the questions, the first question, the top question is, what is the story on how Fritz von Erich turned from hated Nazi heel to beloved babyface? Uh, and again, so Benny Mata has a has a very bit part in this babyface turn, as as described by blog contributor Gary Gibson. I think this would have been late 1966, early 67. Uh, there's a Cowtown elimination, Cowtown style elimination tournament, which consisted of four three-way matches, uh, and winners of these matches were uh, Waldo von Erich. Uh, fellow Nazi sympathizer Karl von Brauner, Nick Kozak, and Benny Mata. Uh, and those four would meet in a four-way elimination match in the main event that evening. Uh, Benny Mata, as you may have expected, was the first one eliminated. Uh, then Gary Hart. Uh, yes, Gary Hart was even around back then, making life difficult for those East Texas baby faces. He was managing uh, von Brauner. Uh, he grabbed Waldo's leg. Uh, getting Carl von Brauner disqualified. So huge, huge, huge boos for Gary Hart and, the, and, the, and von Brauner from the crowd. Uh, Waldo eventually beats Kozak to win the match. But even though Kozak is the babyface, huge crowd cheers for Waldo. And the main event next week was Waldo and Fritz versus Carl von Brauner and former kangaroo Al Costello. And Waldo and Fritz come out, tremendous cheers from the crowd. So Gary uh, Hart, so Gary Hart was such a good heel, he could make people cheer for the damn Nazis. Yes, and from then on, the Von Erichs were baby faces in Texas, at least. Uh, yeah. So technically, technically, it was Waldo that that turned the the family baby face. But and full credit does need to go to Gary Hart. Without him, the Von Erichs, you know, might not have gone from most hated heels in Texas to eventually becoming the most beloved baby face in Texas. What's but Benny Mata has has a really important role, really important role. You, you have to. You need a guy in this position like Benny Mata, a guy who has some credibility, who people, you know, people that they, 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 you read what people say about Benny Mata. And he's a guy people always thought had a chance of fighting from underneath, but who also a guy you can have be the first one eliminated. It doesn't get doesn't hurt. doesn't get hurt by getting eliminated first. A guy who, you know, is not going to try to go into his business for himself or do anything crazy. A guy who will just serve the, the match and the story as a whole. A promoter, you know, a guy can you can just. Tell the guy, here's what needs to happen, and I'll go out and do it. You know, it's such a fine balance of being a guy who can lose, be the first guy eliminated, and all, you know, having it be a guy who the fans can can believe in. Yeah, in many ways, it sounds similar to how Red McKim was used in this territory in the hmm. later on in the '60s and 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 much of the '70s, where he's not full time. Remember, he was uh, with the fire department in Tulsa, but yeah. he would show up occasionally, and sometimes he could be somebody's tag team partner in a main event or a semi main, or be in the semi main against a heel that is being pushed for a match with Watts or even Hodge. Um, and he's probably also used in some ways as uh, a guy who will test the newcomers out and not a shooter per se, but can be an enforcer of sorts, uh, uh, but also uh, almost a gatekeeper for someone's actual abilities. Um, hmm. And so there are times, yeah, there are times when he's brought in in an important role and sometimes when he's just brought in to fill out a card and have a good match with a newcomer or, or with the mid carder. And it seems like that was Benny's role for a lot of his career 
in East Texas. Um, yeah. And speaking of Mata in the McGurk territory, you found a photo spread from the October 1964 issue of Wrestling Review, um, where he actually has pictures of him having a match. What's interesting is that the issue is dated October 1964, but based on my records, the match had to have taken place six months earlier on April 10th. <laughs> and that's one of the things that kills me about the dates on the magazines is yeah. they were always dated a couple of months ahead of when they came out, but because of publishing deadlines, they always covered things that happened a couple months earlier. Yeah. So this is how a match that took place in April doesn't make the magazines until <laughs> October. Yep. <laughs> um, on the blog, we also have a town-by-town -town look at one of the bigger feuds that happened in early 1964, and that's between Danny Hodge and Anton Leone. And John, Anton mm -hmm. Leone is on our list of people we want to talk about, but for reasons that you and I know and none of our listening audience knows, we can't talk about him quite yet because he is yeah. actually a bit player in the biggest wrestling history mystery I have ever tried to solve. Dun, 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 dun. And what's interesting is we actually had a major break in the case within the last few days. Um, yeah. It's actually the reason I started the wrestling history mysteries was because of my work on this case that has literally consumed months of my life um, over the <laughs> last year. But we're really close to not only solving it, but telling the story. But one day we will talk about Anton Leon. I use this line a lot when we talk about guys like Don Fargo or Chris Colt. But even in a business known for crazy characters, Anton Leone was even crazier than most. Yeah. Yeah. So he's on the list of people we will talk about one day. And hopefully he's part of a wrestling history mystery that I will solve one of these days. Um, Mid-Atlantic 1973, John, uh, what's amazing mm. is to see the roster for Mid-Atlantic when they're very tag team heavy, when they're running at least three shows every night. Um, there are so many wrestlers, uh, slotted as main eventers, um, because you figure they're running three towns a night. The main event in each town is almost always a tag team match. Um, and usually it is uh, rotated between three, four, or five top teams. Any one of four or five baby faces, baby face teams, and four or five heel teams can occupy those main event slots. So it's a really, really stacked territory. And one of the people there is Johnny Boyd, but this time it is the Lord Jonathan Boyd, who is here with Norman Charles as the Royal Kangaroos. Um, another tag team that actually finishes up is Mike Dubois and Freddie Sweetan. Uh, Mike Dubois, hmm. Dubois, of course, later known as Alexa Smirnoff, but Freddie Sweetan actually has a bit part in a story you found about Stan Pulaski. Oh yeah, the guy. Uh, they 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 were uh, they have an interesting history, like wrestling against each other, later tagging up. Also, also roommates in a in a mobile home for a little bit, and while they were living together, uh, like <laughs> Sweet Ann's father visiting tells Pulaski he's going to leave and commit suicide. Pulaski and Sweet Ann later go to his home to try to see what's going on and find the Mounties there, and said that he had already killed himself 
with a shotgun. And not the Rougeos, the actual Mounties. <sighs> yeah, actually, yeah, the, the Royal the RCMPs. Um, and, it's, and uh, you know, uh, shortly thereafter, it's also even sadder. Uh, Sweet Hand dies from smoke inhalation after a fire in his summer home following a party for his 36th birthday. Huh. Um, those guys were, were very, very close. And so close, close enough where Sweet Hand's mother asked uh, Pulaski, uh, to take over the funeral services for for their son, her son, which is very very sweet and sad. Yeah, it, it's uh, unfortunate that a lot of these the the wrestlers' passings are not pleasant stories. No, um, and you know, like I said, we try and focus on the lighter side of the ring or or you know the happy stories, but sometimes we have to talk about the uh, you know the, the darker side of things and and. That, uh, you know, brings speaking us of. to yeah, speaking of <laughs> <laughs> these segues just write themselves. Let me tell you, um, <laughs> one of the characters in Mid-Atlantic in 1973 is Brute Bernard and Brute's former tag team partner, Skull Murphy, took his life a few years earlier. Uh, when Bernard is here, he's teaming with, I believe it's Jay York. I think Mike York is also here, but he's teaming with Frank Monty and Bernard ends up forming a team with Jay York. And uh, you found a story uh, that checks all the boxes on my, you know, this story is cool because. So first it is written by Mike Mooneyham, who is uh, really, truly one of the preeminent uh, pro wrestling journalists. He has written a weekly, I think, column for the Post and Courier in South Carolina for approximately 879 years. So good for him. Um, But not only is it written by Mike Mooneyham, it includes a quote from one of the three most well-known wrestling dentists or or dentists with a connection to wrestling. I think the other two are uh, Dr. Isaac Yankum and Dr. Britt Baker DDS. But Mike Lano is quoted in this story. Uh The other thing about this story that makes it a must read for me is that it contains the phrase, the Jewish sensation, when talking about wrestler slash promoter Burt Ruby. So it's written by Mike Mooneyham. It quotes Mike Lano, and it features the phrase, the Jewish sensation. So, uh, but this is interesting in that Bernard, by being a brute, (laughs) for real, actually leads to the mighty Igor, Dick Garza, Getting in the wrestling business. So, yeah. John, briefly uh, connect the dots on how that all came to pass. Uh, well, I, 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 uh, so this is probably in Michigan, I would imagine. And uh, they're working out in the same gym. Uh, Garza, I believe, debuted in 56, 57. So this is probably, let's just say, 55 to put a date on it, uh, or very early 56. And Garza, to that point, had been doing competitive uh, like bodybuilding type stuff. So he's he's jacked. Like he's you know legendary stories of him like as a stress reliever would just sit and you know pull links apart on chains, uh, to, you know for out of for calm his nerves. Uh, so but he, he's absolutely jacked, huge guy. Uh, and by all by all accounts, Bernard can be a bit, bit of a bit of a bully. Like uh, you know they describe him as the kind of guy like. You know, if he sees someone eating a steak and he wants to have some of the guy's steak, he would just go over and, and spit on the steak. That's the kind of guy he is. Uh, so according to Mike Lano, Brute walks by a couple of times while he's while Garza's on one of the weight machines. 
and he comes back again and just like hauls off and whacks Garza in the head, just apparently for, for no reason whatsoever, nothing to prompt this, whatever, just, just whacks Garza in the head. Garza gets up, punches Brute, knocks Brute out. So he's just laying there, not moving, just like out. Garza thinks he's, he's, he's killed him and apparently leaves, which is, I guess, what you do when you think you killed someone. Uh, leaves. After like five minutes, the gym owner comes over, revives Brute. You know, he's like, yeah, come on, Brute. Uh, and Brute like, comes to him and he's like, oh, uh, he's like, get that, get that SOB to meet me at the Park Avenue Hotel. You know, so they relay word to Garza, who shows up, uh, who, and, and Brute, uh, Brute did not show up. <laughs> so where the story reaches uh, Detroit promoter Bert Ruby, who went on to re- recruit Garza into the world of wrestling. Uh, and it's funny, if you look at uh, results for, for Garza, one of his first, first matches, uh, this is like six, six or eight, six, seven, eight years before he's the mighty Igor. Uh, one of his first matches is in a tag match, and Brute Bernard is on the opposing team, which I thought was very funny. Well, there you go. So Brute Bernard was also a brute in real life. I, I love stories of wrestlers getting beat up and then being so impressed by their uh, attacker that they invite them to join wrestling. I, th- I believe, and I'm not kidding, I think that's how many of Don Fargo's tag team partners actually got in wrestling, was they would, uh, Fargo would get in a fight with them at a bar, um, and if they did well enough, he would uh, take them under his wing. There's just um, so many yeah. wild stories about Brute. Like, yeah, so there's many, a, like... a post on the Kayfabe Memories uh, website uh, in the Mid-Atlantic section uh, posted by John Hitchcock, which has some amazing Brute Bernard stories. But uh, unfortunately, we talked earlier about Skull Murphy, Brute's longtime acting partner, taking his life. Uh, oh, Brute met a tragic end in what it was either a suicide or a game of Russian roulette gone wrong. Yeah. Self-inflicted gunshot wound. Yeah, self-inflicted. Yeah, self-inflicted oh. gunshot wound. That, uh, according to some versions of the story, was brute. Um, either you know, either hoping you know, playing rushing roulette and hoping he wouldn't you know he wouldn't lose, but but did. So, uh, a, a sad ending for another wrestler. We've got footage of Bernard against. The Money Man, Hank James. <laughs> Your favorite nickname. Uh, well, yeah, well, one, of, one of my two favorite nicknames, but I think it's between him and Jack the Neck Vansky. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you, I think you found this. It's from uh, Big Time uh, Wrestling in Detroit, probably 1976. So Brute Bernard versus The Money Man, Hank James. If you want to see Brute and his longtime partner, Skull Murphy, in action, there's also some uh, uh, some footage of a match with them. From 1963, we think, against the Bavarian Boys. Yeah, and the ring announcer for this is great. Just his voice is like the stereotypical, like the ring announcer in a Looney Tunes cartoon. He's like, Skull Moisey. And it's fantastic. (laughs) And uh, we talked about some of the sensationalistic headlines in wrestling magazines of the 70s. Uh, (sighs) The October 1974 issue of Wrestling Monthly has an article about Brute Bernard. I'm hoping this is fictitious, but uh, the the lead is at 14, a 300 pound milkman's helper, Brute Bernard beat hell out of stingy customers. 
And it goes on to tell a purportedly uh, true story, which I, God, I hope is not, (laughs) about a 14-year-old milkman's helper beating the hell out of stingy customers. So we will post uh, a page of that um on our blog on our podcast companion piece along with um the youtube videos and and some of the other articles we're talking about so you can see what exactly we're talking about uh another wrestler in mid-atlantic in 1973 is a, a very young rookie just getting his start and that is ron star mm-hmm. and ron star is someone we've seen in the mcgurk territory um a few times in later years, but in 1973, he's a rookie and he's billed as Bobby star early on in his career. And the story is uh, pretty interesting. While he was in Florida in early 1973, wrestling as Bobby star, Ron Wright came in for a very brief stint. He's only there like two or three weeks. And for some reason, one night the ring announcer conflated their names and introduced Ron introduced star as Ron star. And at first, Ron was mad uh, because he was you know, being billed as Bobby Star, but he thought about it. He ended up liking the name and stuck with it. So if it's because of Ron Wright that we have Ron Star. Yeah. Um, there's a book uh, by Rock Rims, uh, written by both Ron and Rock Rims, called Bad to the Bone, 25 Years of Riots and Wrestling. Uh, really interesting. Ron's father worked in construction. And when Ron was first trying to break into wrestling, he actually found out that several of the wrestlers that worked in Atlanta stayed at apartment buildings yeah. his father had built. Yeah, I think it was like the Torres brothers or some of the guys yeah. that lived there. And he just like met up with his befriended them, started carrying their bags, that sort of thing. And I think they worked out. He worked out at the gym with them eventually, which is weird. I think that's where he also meets that same gym is where he meets uh, Buddy Colt and, and Billy Spears, which is kind of bizarre that these two guys, given their often idle connection, uh, that they both approach Ron about getting into the business if he, you know, if he can, if he can come up with five hundred bucks or whatever. Um, and it's, it's sort of interesting. They don't, they don't really like when they, in terms of them training him, they they don't really smarten him up per se. They just sort of show him how to work without hurting his opponent, but nothing in really terms of inner workings of the business or the psychology of working a match like the Torres brothers work with him a little bit too but you really get the sense that his training with the uh, Al Velasco is where it starts happening and Al you know shows him how to how to sell for an opponent how to protect himself an interesting story uh, about Ron also in the book is when he first came to work for McGurk um he uh, in one of his first nights in he beats Dr. X and this was something we have talked about before that newcomers, their first week in, often win. Even even if there there are no necessarily big plans for them, they give them a win because if it turns out they've got something with them, they can then then treat it like it was a push and continue to move them up. But if they don't, then the next week they can put him in against another prelim wrestler in mid-carder. And this time maybe he struggles and loses and they just, you know, portray it as, okay, he won the first one, but against tougher competition, he, you know, couldn't hack it. And that's what happened with Ron in the McGurk territory when Dr. X, who, you know, this was not long after X was the number one heel in the territory, yeah. um, did, did you know, did that for Ron Starr, which is really interesting to see. We've got some YouTube clips. Um Ron as the spoiler against Chavo Guerrero. And John, this was something I didn't know, but I guess 
Jardine was supposed to come in, but changed his mind because he was unhappy with what his pay was going to be? Or was he there and actually left? He was there, I think, uh, after the first week he left. Uh, he was not happy with his pay, which I, which, which uh, Ron says was $500 a week. He was expecting more. Um, and $500 a week was fine with Ron. So what LaBelle does is have Star pull double duty, working as babyface Ron Star on the undercard, while also working as the mass spoiler in the main event. And this is, this is interesting to me for another reason, because yes. when McGurk has, you know, when after the McGurk-Watts split, Ron Star is working for McGurk, and so is the spoiler. And I, I just assumed that was that it was Jardine. He is working for East Texas, and McGurk has very good relations with Fritz. Um, uh, David and Carrie come in. Other, I think Blair is going back and forth between East Texas and and here. So I just assumed it was Jardine because Jardine's working in East Texas. But after yeah. reading this. I'm wondering Maybe. if that wasn't the only place where Ron Starr worked as himself yeah. and as the spoiler, because Starr is, you know, working for McGurk. And that's, you know, the yeah. time when he was promised the uh, a two-year run with the World Junior Heavyweight title and a financial guarantee. Whatever Ron had been promised by Leroy did not pan out, and it ends up with a lawsuit. And there's an article in the Tulsa newspaper um, where you know, they pretty much exposed the business, and this was in 1980. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like we, you know, I've I've often thought about like, oh, I, you know, he never really got that big, that big Crockett run or that big WWF run. And I think you know, you look at this, um, you know, the lawsuit uh, here with McGurk. Well, he had he had an offer from Vince around the same time that McGurk had brought, gave him the offer to come back in uh, late 79. Yeah. And, and because, yeah, because McGurk offer was already, had come in first, Star turned it down. And then probably, perhaps because of the way things panned out with Ron filing the lawsuit, uh, Vince might have just not even wanted to, you know, touch him after that, unfortunately. Yeah. And there was also, I remember in the, in the book, he talks about it too. So it's not, we're not, you know, Talking out of class, he, you know, he also had talked about forming a wrestler's union, uh, and that may have affected the way promoters, some promoters viewed him. Like, uh, like he was in Georgia. He was, was at the national cha- champion for a while there, uh, winning, it, winning it from Garvin when uh, they were running. And then once Crockett and Dusty come in, Dusty takes the belt off Star, with no explanation, and just gives it back to, to Ronnie Garvin. So it's... it's it's interesting all the behind the scenes stuff. I would love to know what the what the what the thought process was there behind that. Yeah, it's, you know, it's so hard to get the real story behind the scenes, but we can see what's going on in the ring. Not only was there oh, that yeah. match with Chavo, but we've also got some links to uh, a match with uh, Leo Burke in Grand Prix, and then also with Tatsumi Fujinami in Japan. Oh, this nice. was from September 1980. And that brings us to what I'm calling from the eyes and ears of John Boucher. And and John has a great uh, archival collection of, of all sorts of uh, memorabilia, mostly wrestling, but who knows what else is uh, there if you <laughs> dig, dig enough. But he sent me um, about a 20-minute segment from uh, the KPRC Radio in Houston, hosted by local sports broadcaster Bob Allen talking about Houston wrestling. And it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty 
good piece. It's, for the most part, pretty favorable, not condescending, with one exception. And John, I'm going to play this clip. It's uh, about 35, 40 seconds long, and it's it's Alan describing the wrestling fans, and then there's audio footage of one fan in particular being quite vocal uh, as a match is introduced. So we'll play that now. The fans in the arena look like they would have trouble meeting the payments on the roll-your-own-cigarette machine, but they consider what they spend every week for wrestling tickets as money well spent. John, do you know when this segment aired? This segment aired, I believe, January eighth on nineteen seventy one, or at least that's the that's the date on the uh, the tape reel reel case. Based on the wrestlers uh, that were interviewed, and based on one of the wrestlers uh, that the ring announcer mentions, it has to have been nineteen seventy two. Seventy two. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, we'll put it this way: the matches have to have happened because they very clearly announce a match between uh, Red Bastine and Mike Pedusis. Yeah. The only time those two wrestled one another in Houston, when Stan Stasiak was also there, because he's also interviewed, were March twenty. Mark What? Oh. Yeah, March Crusher 24th. Stasiak. Crusher Stasiak. March 24th or May 12th, both in 1972. Huh. Interesting. So I don't know if notice. there's other things on that reel, but it might be worth looking at to see if uh, if my detective skills are right, or perhaps <laughs> perhaps I'm wrong. Like I said, it happens occasionally, um, so we can find we can check on that. Um, and did you post that full audio anywhere? That will that will be posted by the time you are listening to this podcast. Okay. So uh, you heard a very brief clip on our podcast, but for the full uh, twenty or so minute clip. Uh, we'll post a link to that on the blog. Um, and talking about Houston wrestling uh, reminded me of a book I had wanted to order, and that was Jeff Winningham's book, Friday Night in the Coliseum. It's a uh, mostly photos, uh, some amazing pictures that uh, John took a ringside at Houston wrestling. The book originally came out in 1971, but they um, released a new expanded edition just last year. And I ordered it. It actually came in earlier this week, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. There's some oh, incredible nice. black and white photos of Houston wrestling uh, at uh, Friday nights at the Coliseum. So check I, that. I still out. have to get the. Uh, I still have to get the. Uh, you know the, the the reprint. I have one of the originals, and I'm, I'm still. Mm. I still have to get that that new one. Yeah, because you know Very there's 32 new pages, so you have to. Oh wow! Oh no, I do. I do. I'm totally serious. <laughs> uh, no, I know you are. We're almost yeah. done with. Episode number 12 of Trailing the Territories. But as always, uh, we're going to end with This Month I Learned, where both John and I state one new thing we learned, usually about wrestling, but quite frankly, there are no limits uh, over the last month. So, John, what did you learn this month? Yeah, so one of one of my favorite angles, um, I guess I guess I don't even know if I'd call it an angle, maybe just a setup to a feud is the Pepper Gomez cast iron stomach angle. Mm. You know, oh, yeah. Where, where Ray Stevens challenged Pepper Gomez. He's going to jump off the top rope onto Pepper's stomach. Instead, he jumps, lands on his throat, 
Pepper's coughs up blood. The feud is on. Let's go make some money, people. Uh, and different promotions have used variations on this over the years. We talked about the uh, Dusty Rose Ivan Putsky version of this a few months ago from mm-hmm. McGurk. Um, now, I had always thought that the Ray Stevens, Pepper Gomez version of this uh, from San Francisco in 1962 was the first time that Gomez did this angle. I thought it was some, you know, collaborative booking promotional stroke of genius, you know, among Roy Shire, Ray Stevens, and Pepper Gomez. But this month I learned that the first time Pepper Gomez did that angle was in Boston in 1959. And Gomez says that the idea came from the mind of Killer Kowalski. Uh, so in 1959, Kowalski's in Boston. Uh, I think the promoter knows not Paul Bowser, Johnny Doyle, maybe Eddie Quinn. And Kowalski had the stomach claw as a finisher. And they would do this thing where in his matches with, with Pepper, where he couldn't get the, he couldn't get the claw and he'd almost be able to get it, but he wouldn't be able to get right in, right on the stomach. He wouldn't, and the people would go crazy for it. Um, so eventually maybe taking inspiration from his, uh, top rope, you know, knee drop to Yukon Eric. He comes up with the idea of challenging Gomez, jumping off the top rope onto his cast iron stomach, but landing on his throat. And of course, it gets over huge. They sell the Boston Garden multiple times, you know, yada, yada, so on and so forth. You know, but I never knew that the first time Pepper Gomez did this angle was with Kowalski in Boston. I'd always assumed the Stevens angle was, was the first time he did it. And, and it's funny, if you, if you go to, to Wikipedia, uh, and you'll see this other places on the on the internet there. Uh, it says that in the late 60s, Gomez joined the AWA and had a heated feud with Killer Kowalski after Kowalski delivered a knee drop to his throat, an echo of the famed Ray Stevens angle, when in reality, they were just redoing their own angle from 10 years earlier. Yeah, it's amazing how fans growing up in a certain area will remember like the cigar, the cigar burning angle. Um, yeah. and, and they will claim, well, you know, my, you know, my home territory was where they invented it. And chances yeah. are they didn't, um, yeah. you know, uh, so yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So that was, uh, could have been my new thing, but my new thing has nothing to do with wrestling except very tangentially. Uh-huh. I was r- trying to find some more information on a wrestler who had a very, very brief career in the early seventies by the name of Jerry bone B O H N. In fact, his career seems to have consisted of several months in Amarillo and several weeks uh, for Goulas. And that's it. I really couldn't find a whole lot about Jerry, but I found a whole lot about his father. His father's name was Eddie Bone. Again, that's B-O-H-N. And it's your typical story of former sparring partner of Jack Dempsey turned Colorado state senator turned uh, president of the Colorado Boxing Commission for 40 years, turned owner and proprietor of the Pig and Whistle service station slash restaurant slash hotel motel, which is uh, at one point it was a landmark on uh, the fabulous strip of Denver, Colorado. Um, It, started out as just a service station and a barbecue. It expanded to a restaurant and then expanded to a hotel. Um, Dempsey stayed there many times. In fact, many of the boxers when they were in town would stay at this hotel and do their training, do their road work um, in the streets outside the motel. When Billy Martin was a manager for the minor league Denver team, he lived at the hotel. 
Tommy Dorsey, whenever he was in town, would stay at this hotel slash motel. Wow. To give you an idea of how renowned it was, it burned down, uh, I think, in 2010. Currently, there is a marijuana dispensary on the premises named the Pig and Whistle Dispensary. So they kept the original name Pig and Whistle because it was such a historic landmark in the city of Denver. And if any of our listeners are from Denver and grew up, um, I think he owned it from 1924 through like 1989, some ungodly uh, portion of the 20th century. So if any of our listeners are from Denver, please let us know if you've ever, ever heard of the Pig and Whistle. So that's what I learned this month. Next month on the podcast, John, we're going to go back to 1973 and look at the second quarter. Uh, we mentioned earlier how Watts um, had left in 1964, but this is also another time where he leaves in 1973. And this will be a, a chance to get a good look at the roster when he leaves, because he had really built things up in 1971 and 1972 when he came back and had a, a significant role in, in the booking. And we're going to see what happens when he leaves. We're also going to play part one of an interview I recently conducted with Gil Culkin, who is the son of uh, George Culkin, who was the local promoter for Leroy McGurk in the early 1970s. So we're going to talk about the towns that George Culkin promoted for Leroy in the early 1970s. Uh, we're also going to move forward to the second quarter of 1964. And on top of that, we're going to have a new almanac to discuss. Earlier this Ooh. year, I released the 1973 Heart of America Almanac, which was a detailed look at a year in the life of the Central States Territory. And next month, we're going to have another one, still in 1973, but we're going to look at oh. a different territory. And I will say this, there is a connection to a major event that happened in Central States in 1973 that uh, links back to this territory in the same year. Mm. So we'll have that to look forward to next month. Again, our blog, uh, where you can see all of our stats, uh, as well as the article on Junkyard Dog uh, and some other articles I have written over the years, we can see that at chartingtheterritories.com. To look at the Heart of America Almanac and the Almanac that's coming out next month, you can go to payhip.com slash chartingtheterritories, and you can visit our message forum at kfabememories.com. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter or follow me on Twitter, I'm at... at Al Gets Wrestling. That's Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. Uh, and John, where can our listeners find you? Oh, I am at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R on Twitter. Follow me. Lots of good wrestling stuff. Lots of good wrestling stuff, lots of good music stuff, lots of good baseball stuff. Yes. Uh, and to be the first to know when new episodes of Charting the Territories, Wrestling History Mysteries, and Stats 101 are available, you can subscribe to Charting the Territories wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingthepodcast.com. Charting the Territories is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. John, next month is our one-year anniversary. I anticipate oh. we are going to be wearing birthday hats for our yes, podcast. at the Pig and Whistle. At the Pig and Whistle. At, yes, we will meet at the Pig and Whistle Dispensary. <laughs> so there's no telling what uh, what that podcast oh, will boy. sound like if, we, if we're if we recording it after a visit to the dispensary in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Could be interesting, but it will be our one-year anniversary, so we will oh, so see exciting. all of you next month. See you next month, folks. <laughs>